0: Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Public Discourse, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, And from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. Today, we complete our series on American identity and culture with Norman Podhoretz's Making It. Please check out our previous episodes in this series on authors including Ralph Ellison, George Schuyler, Albert Murray, and William Alexander Percy. We're hoping to do a roundtable on American identity with some combination of our guests from those previous episodes. Our guest to discuss making it is Fred Bauer. Fred has written for a number of publications including National Review, City Journal, The Weekly Standard, The American Conservative, and Genealogies of Modernity. His interests include Contemporary American politics, accounts of identity, and the role of social and ethical commitments for liberty. Welcome, Fred Bauer, to Enduring Interest. Really glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Flag. It's great to be here. I'm a longtime fan of the podcast. Oh, excellent, excellent. So we're here to talk about Norman Podhoretz's "Making It." Before we dive into the book, I thought it might be helpful to our listeners just for you to give a kind of a brief bio overview of of Podhoretz's career the book is obviously a well, not obviously for for people who don't know it is a kind of a memoir that covers the the early part of his um intellectual life and 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 youth and so it really i, I would say in, in a kind of substance way treats you know his years from 16 17, 18 years old to to the ripe old age of 33 uh but obviously a lot happens to uh, norman before it's after the age of 33 so why don't you just give a, again a brief Kind of overview of of his uh, writing, intellectual, political career for for our listeners.
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, P- uh, Norman Podhoretz was born in 1930. He was the son of a milkman. He was uh, his family were uh, were immigrants, um, and he grew up originally in Brownsville, Brooklyn. And he talks about this in making it that he says one of the longest journeys in the world is going uh, from Brooklyn to Manhattan, uh, which is where his career trajectory ultimately takes him was very accomplished at school as well as we talk as he talks a lot about in this book he um after uh high school he got a scholarship to go to Columbia Uh, after Columbia he got another scholarship to go to Cambridge University um, in the United Kingdom and he started he had this sort of meteoric rise as a writer you know he was by his early 20s he was writing these sort of well-regarded essays He joins the staff in commentary, um, and a lot of his life is going to be bound up with commentary. Eventually, he'll become the editor of it. He's drafted in the U.S. military. He serves in that for a few years, which he talks about in not a super flattering way in memoir. uh, (laughs) Yeah, not
0: not the favorite part of his life.
1: (laughs) No, exactly. It's uh, very brutal. And so uh, then he comes back and he um, starts again a commentary. Um, He leaves it for a little bit and then, but eventually comes back and serves as editor of commentary for. 35 years, I think, until the uh, mid-1990s, uh, serving as editor there from 1960, I think, until 95. Uh, he marries Midge Dechter, um, who was herself a significant writer, and um, they and they had um, ultimately four children, two that she had from a prior marriage and um, two kids um, that they had uh, together. Port Harris is probably most famously known as one of the major so-called neoconservatives of the 20th century, although he comes from neoconservatism in a slightly different trajectory than some other neoconservatives. Um, others, like um, Daniel Bell or Irving Kristol or Nathan Glazer, were deeply invested in politics from the very beginning and made this famous shift from the left to the political right, or at least maybe to, to the center left um, in some cases. Um Paul Harris, however, starts off at his writerly journey or intellectual journey more as a literary intellectual. Um, he's interested in politics. You'd see, um, I mean, he talks about this in Making It, uh, but he doesn't start out to be like, want to be like a political writer necessarily. Um, however, um, and he starts off on the political left like many other neoconservatives. However, as the 1960s go on and we enter the early 1970s, uh, Port Harris's politics start to shift more to the right, uh, perhaps in part as a response uh, to this work. Uh, Making It When It Came Out was a very controversial book It was a lot of his former friends um, sort of trashed him in print on it. He grew sort of increasingly alienated from the that New York intellectual scene um, and increasingly shifted um, to the right. Um, I believe he voted for Richard Nixon in in 1972 and was a big defender of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And as he um, matured as a writer, became increasingly interested in foreign policy. And that's probably, if you're younger, that's probably what you more think of Norman Podharris Harris as being associated with, with foreign policy. But through, especially the early part of his literary career, he was deeply interested in other issues, um, which sort of making it explores. Eventually he received the you know, Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2004, um, and he's still with us today, at least at the time. That's what we're recording this.
0: Yeah, yeah, over you know, over 90 years old and still yes. still doing well. I guess he's, uh, I would I would add that, he seems to have more more of a an affinity for for the right in its kind of Trumpian version than his son John does. So um, that's been a kind of interesting thing. I think he's done a couple interviews in the last I want to say five or six years. I can't remember exactly how how long ago, but there have been some interviews with him uh, prodding him to um, you know to reflect on Trump as a political phenomenon. So those are probably pretty easy to find on online if if listeners want to do that the the other recommendation i would make to listeners on Podhoritz and kind of the related and and important phenomenon of neoconservatism there's a wonderful documentary called arguing the world yes. made i want to say in the late 90s early 2000s it um horitz is not one of the principal figures uh the, the the documentary takes up you mentioned daniel bell nathan glazer Urban Crystal and then the, the other one who really didn't didn't move from left to right is Irving Howe. So those four figures are the primary intellectuals treated in the documentary but, but Horitz does get some airtime in in the documentary and and um it's a I think it's a really well done done piece of uh piece of filmmaking and um yeah I re- recommend it to uh to our listeners. So let's let's dive into the book Making it, as as you said, he talks about this journey from Brooklyn to to Manhattan. So it talks about his kind of personal transformation from you know an immigrant Jew to entering kind of the um, this intellectual world of, of Manhattan. the The explicit theme uh, of the book at the beginning is is success and what it, what it takes to succeed in America. And then I would say the secondary theme is how that success changes one's view of oneself and one's identity, especially as an immigrant. And so those are basically the two, I guess principal themes that I want to explore in our in our time together today. But yeah let's just start with with, with success and maybe we can start with the central paradox paradox of success that uh, Pad Horetz begins the begins the book with.
1: There are a lot of tensions of success that we see in this work. This is, I think, in some ways, making it is really an example of like real 60s literature in a lot of ways, because one of the key ideas of a lot of figures from the 60s is, let's see what's really going on. Let's try to pop open the hood and look at the nitty gritty and sometimes even the less attractive side of things. And so he's doing that with success here. He's saying, you know, in American culture, we have this deep anxiety about success. On one hand, we desire it, uh, but also often we're ashamed of it. And he sort of taps into William James, who does other figures referring to this, you know, American infatuation with success. And there's this very long lineage of it. I mean, thinking even from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, thinking about, you know, a young man rising in the world. And this is what Puttharst is going to do in this work. Uh, but he's going to show and really focus on in this how success costs. Um, and not just time and effort like, oh, you got to put a lot of time in, you know, studying to do well on an exam or to make partner at a big law firm or something like that. But you know, as you said, flag, a cost is a part of yourself. You start, um, you have to change yourself to succeed. And you start off not even as it were, knowing what this cost will be. I mean, the first part of this, this work is called A Journey in Blindness. Um, So he starts starts off here as a young man, you know, doing very well in school, hoping to become like an intellectual or something like that, and not realizing what that will really mean. But says, this means I will have to um, become alienated from my family, um, from the friends that I grew up with, that I knew locally in Brownsville. I'll start to talk differently. I'll start to have different tastes and different sensibility. He refers multiple times to the city of, I'm committing treason to my family, right? You know, I have to sell out these old connections to become this, to make that journey from Brooklyn uh, to Manhattan. Um, and again, it's not like the Brooklyn of today where I'm sure a lot of people
0: would, uh,
1: young people wouldn't mind being in Brooklyn, but at this time-
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just, Not Park Slope back. or uh, yeah, yeah. Washington exactly. Heights, the fancy, exactly fancy so, parks I mean, today. I
1: mean, yeah, exactly. I think that some people might want to live there are more than Manhattan, but for him, this is like you know, this is this big journey, and he's thinking about you know um, how much you sort of have to lose by that. He, an image that he brings up again and again in thinking about success in this, is the brutal bargain, and we and we see different iterations of that in this work. Um, early, I think I think this is the first case of it early on in the book, where he says that okay, first the first one part of this brutal bargain. Is that I have to acknowledge someone as I have to? I can aspire for this new class, but in aspiring for it, I have to recognize that class is superior to me. I have right. to sort of admit my own inferiority if I want to climb up higher. Yeah. Um, so this this kind of self denigration is inherent in that
0: you know project of trying to climb the ladder. Right. And he brings that out right in some of his figures from his early life, a high school teacher. You know, it's quite explicit with them that she's going to turn him from, and she uses not so flattering language, right? I mean, basically, a, a kind of dirty immigrant, yeah. right, In, into a respectable, uh intelligent, you know, member of 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 the establishment of the kind of the, the mainstream. And um, you know, I get the sense that initially he's pretty he's pretty shocked by that, but yeah. as she kind of moves him along and introduces him to this other world. He, as you said, he he kind of partially makes peace with with that bargain and and is kind of willing to defer to some of these figures who are trying to turn him into something substantively different from, right, his self-understanding as a um as a member of his, you know, Jewish immigrant family, yeah, definitely. Um and education as we maybe talk about later.
1: Education is one of these key vehicles for both that sort of climbing the ladder, uh, but also for um, self-revision. And sometimes even revision against what you even want necessarily, but you sort of just get gradually habituated to this new kind of cultural milieu,
0: and you're going to start to feel and look at the world differently, what Horat says. Yeah. Um, So maybe we can continue this thread of success through some of the later parts of the book, as he as he rises and goes, he ends up going to Columbia, as you mentioned in your introduction and eventually to Cambridge and then back from Cambridge finding his way in uh, into the intellectual world, the the famous New York intellectuals, the intellectual world of the of the 50s in Manhattan. Talk a little bit about some of the kind of ways that that his understanding of of what success is kind of changes as he enters these these different worlds so you you know you can pick anything you can talk here about you know success as as it pertains to columbia or cambridge or success as it pertains to his self understanding as an intellectual and writer as he's trying to navigate um this this intellectual world whatever whatever you want to pull on there
1: yeah well, well there are a few different layers there um one is First of all, this journey that he experiences throughout the book of trying to understand that it's okay to want success from his perspective. I mean, he opens with this thing that I realized in my 30s, finally, it was better to have money than not to have money. It was better to have power than not to have power. And he thinks about how culture, um, especially elite culture, tries to create this anxiety about success that, oh, maybe you shouldn't want it. You shouldn't desire it. And he's struggling with sort of, I think, throughout the course of this, trying to work through the, the consequences of that, or trying to work through this, you know, should I desire this or shouldn't I? I, I think he eventually settles on, says this at the beginning, and then I think later on he sort of consolidates this, almost four different modes of success he's thinking about in this work, and he experiences them differently throughout it. Uh, there's money, uh, there's power, there's fame, and there's social position. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems that the first thing that really motivates him is, I mean, he talks about it at a few points, like fame, I want to get that acclamation, whether it's the acclamation of teachers whether it's being recognized by my peers as being accomplished. And so, okay, being recognized. So I want to go to an elite school. I want to sort of get that kind of good reputation on being well-known. This is why I want to write, because I want to be read. I want people to know who I am. I want, and he thinks about how this is one of the great infatuations of writers. He, you know, at one point references Milton. Uh, Milton says, you know, this is even, you know, this is this thing that writers create, the idea of fame. And obviously that's a, a trope you see throughout literature, whether it's Shakespeare's right. sonnets or, or elsewhere. They start to evaluate other kinds of success, too. Uh, money is an important one. Um, you're thinking about, you know, um, you, a lot of this book, again, in t- keeping with this sort of spirit of the 60s, is very explicit about money. Uh, my rent was $165 a month. You know, the New Yorker would pay me, I think, $250 for a piece. Um, this other place would pay me $750. Um, so we see him, like, giving us really the dollars and cents for what money can give you, right, um, and seeing the attractiveness of that. And one of the things that we see about money and actually other forms of success, too, in this work, and this is, I guess, another one of the paradoxes of it, is that success is kind of unfulfilling uh, because you get something and then you always want more of it. He talks about this with money. Like I got, you know, um, he this is when he's editor of commentary. He starts writing pieces uh, for Look Magazine. And again, it gives him an additional few hundred dollars a month. And he didn't need that money before he started writing for them. But after he started writing with them, suddenly it was all gone. And I was, you know, I was still, you know, basically, you know, um, on the verge of, you know, having zero in my bank account. Um, So you get more money, you always need more. Um, You get more status. You always need more. There's always someone above me. There's always a more exclusive party I can be invited to. Um, And so he thinks about that with money. Later on in the book, he starts to consider other kinds of success, I think. He sees power. It seems to me power is a more sort of implicit theme earlier in the work. But it becomes very explicit when he talks about going to the military, um, when he's put in basic training and where, the, where there's a drill sergeant who basically controls you totally. Um, he sees this is power at its most brutal. Um, and this is power is reduced to, I think he calls it one point, power is reduced to position. Um, you salute the uniform, not the person, right? So it's that, oh, this is the drill sergeant. It doesn't matter who he is. Because he has this position in the hierarchy, he has absolute and complete control over me. and. He grates at that. Uh, he, I think he grates at that overt form of domination. And of course, I think he uh, grates at the fact that he is the one being dominated in this way. And later on in the work, we see him struggling with a different sense of power when he's trying to um, work a commentary because uh, he comes back from the military. And at first, you know, um, he's it's commentary when he comes back is run by these two brothers that he calls the boss. Um, I believe it's actually the Greenberg brothers, I think it's come out, uh, Clement and um, his other brother. Yeah, Clement and Martin Greenberg. Um, but, um, and he has this power struggle where the boss is basically, because the boss sees him as a threat, is trying to undermine his position in the magazine. Right. And he finds it so frustrating because this is about in his mid-20s. He's used to succeeding at almost everything, especially in the intellectual world. And here again, he is being blocked. Um, so he has to quit. And then when he comes back, yeah, there's been a change of regime and commentary and his made editor, he starts to think about how can I use power to make this magazine the kind of magazine I want it to do? And he thinks about how right. you need to have a vigorous executive to run the magazine, to give it a strong viewpoint. Yeah. Um. So that power in this intellectual world is unavoidable. And he thinks, you know, intellectuals often, and this is, again, one of the, the tensions or issues of success, intellectuals often like to think that, oh, we're immune from questions of success or separate from them. But one of the things he keeps trying to keep reinforcing throughout this work is how those questions of success and power and money are everywhere. And they're essential, for, you know, for the intellectual life as it's actually lived.
0: Right. Um, yeah, I would add to the importance of this question of success and all of the different manifestations that you've you've mentioned and how all of it relates to Pud understanding of himself as a writer this is one of my, this um one of my favorite or a couple of my favorite passages in the book deal with this and he's you know he wants to think of himself as a writer who's interested in in criticism right he has this very kind of profound understanding of the role of the critic and the responsibility of the critic right to be a a cultivator of taste and you know make sure that um, people in the right magazines right admire the right books and writers for the right reasons and so you know his training at um Columbia under Lionel trilling and then Levis at, at Cambridge all lead him I think you know rightly to take to take this responsibility very seriously and this he has a very high understanding of of literature and what you know what its role in society is and therefore very high understanding of what His role of as a critic might be, Um, but then throughout the book, of course, you know people have writer's block, and it's tough to get. It's tough to find your to find your motivation, and and so eventually, um, there comes a point where he discovers that um, you know maybe it's best just to write for money, (laughs) and he says he harkens back to like this 18th century. Version of of who the writer and critic is instead of the more high nineteenth century version, and he and so it's like sometimes people just write you know for money and and that's okay, and uh, he he sort of I don't know I I found it very affecting because he's um I don't know taking himself down a notch and kind of reminding himself well maybe maybe I'm I'm not maybe the role of a, the status and role of an intellectual in America, right? Isn't that different from a carpenter, you know, or an advertising executive, right? We, we have to get by too. And, and so I, I just found that, that part of the book really interesting. Um, Someone dealing with their kind of writerly struggles and, and um, what, what's trying to figure out what sorts of things can help them produce work that, that is, that is interesting and, and, I guess, most importantly, work that is finished, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, no. I. Well, certainly that's a really interesting theme throughout this work is that he talks a lot about the exterior idea of success, but implicit in a lot of this work is that idea of that feeling of intellectual success, that like I've accomplished something, that I've written this, you know, as, as you said, Flagg, he really has this very high view of criticism. Um, he almost thinks of criticism as like a kind of art, whom he thinks almost as the most like sort of intellectually vital field in America at the time he thinks of in the 1950s as as being criticism. And so there's a great kind of urgency to it, and he really wants to do it well. And there, are, I think it is very affecting when he talks about like what I'm trying to do as a writer, how um I as a writer am looking for this idea of coherence and this sort of disciplined ability to bring out something about yourself in a very deep way, but also looking at the frustrations of that. Right. and again, weirdly how the idea of success uh, some I mean, I think especially if you think of the nineteenth century, early 20th century, there's this idea that oh, monetary success or an investment in that can be a distraction from the aesthetic accomplishment. But as you said like no, actually here thinking about money actually helps him break through the writer's block like go oh, let me just get through it, right and that those that pursuit of that exterior accomplishment actually um, helps relieve the block that's been so sort of frustrating him
0: and yeah, maybe we can, transition now we're talking about his um self-understanding as a critic and writer right that grows in the 1950s when he comes back from from Cambridge and starts to meet uh the the New York intellectual scene um one of his first major pieces is this review of of Saul Bellows Adventures of Augie March that kind of announces his uh his presence in this in this world he refers to this world uh, and the people who inhabit it as the family. So he's talking about people around the famous post-war journal Partisan Review, um, two editors, uh, uh, Philip Robb and uh, William Phillips. Lots of people associated with that that journal, like Hannah Arendt, uh, Dwight McDonald, and others. Talk about his entry into that world and... I mean, obviously, we, we we can connect it to um, what we've already started to to pick at in terms of success and status, right? I mean, it it's, I think it's, it ends up being a kind of comical part of the book, because of course, these intellectuals think of themselves as having very high-minded motivations, right? I mean, they share, I think, to an extent, Puthoritz's view of what criticism ought to be. They all take themselves very seriously, right? But as Put Horetz, um, as he evokes this world, right? It turns out that they're driven by things like wanting to be invited to the right dinner parties, and they're motivated by someone saying something nice about a book review, right? I mean, so so in other words, they're they're motivated by lots of the things that motivate um, you know ordinary Americans in terms of wanting to wanting status, wanting to be liked, et cetera, et cetera. So just yeah, if if you would just talk for a few minutes about his um, evocation of this of this world of the New York intellectuals and and how it relates to the broader themes of the book
1: that portrayal of, of what he calls the family is one of the reasons probably why this book was so controversial when it was first published because it on one hand makes the intellectual life look very glamorous. you're sitting around feeling very passionately about ideas and having fights about them and, and that sort of thing. But also there is the human comedy in this, and they again they're deeply motivated by you know personal slight. Um, it's not just pure ideas after all. That family's embedded in this bigger social network, and those social incentives actually play a big role in this. Um, that was, I mean, again something that really rose Poharitz's um, stock in that intellectual world was that was that you know review of Bellows, you know Augie March. And one of Bellows' friends, you know, came up to him afterwards and said, you know, we'll get you for that review if it takes 10 years uh, showing these very, you know, <laughs> brutal personal vendettas right. that can involve. One book review, uh, really?
0: <laughs> really? It's like, oh, geez. I mean,
1: like, you know, uh, but it was, you know, it's, um. although I guess it's always understandable because, you know, I mean, in this time period, the the exterior rewards of being intellectual are not vast sums of money necessarily. Um, but it is like status in this world, right? Um, it's right. not even necessarily fame, right? You know, because in this time, when he's thinking the late 40s, early 50s, a lot of these people haven't really even made a major, you know, been become that publicly known yet, but it's status within this very small world matters a great deal, um, which adds this kind of hothouse, kind of um, frantic energy to it, which is, I think, part of the charm of this book in some ways, exploring that. Um, yeah, so the family... One of the things that's interesting about this book is how fine-grained Put and analysis can be, because he says there's this thing called the family, but really there are three generations within this family, sort of right. separated by ten years each.
0: Yeah, the people um, I mentioned, I, I guess the, the the those those folks would be the first the first generation. Yeah, yeah. the
1: first generation, you know, So again, people like you know uh, Dwight Macdonald and Sidney Hook and Lionel Trilling and Philip Roth. I mean, most of them are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. Um, he says, and most of them are mostly they're focused on criticism, as he puts it, you sort of, you know, they're, I mean, it's, if you look at something like the Partisan Review, really focused on that. The family as a whole um, is known, is, this point in the 50s, is going to be mostly publishing in these little magazines, like Commentary, uh, like Partisan Review, and like, you know, uh, Encounter Probably and other ones. Um, you know, so sort of things that are directed at a very small audience. And especially the first generation is deeply alienated from America. He put, as, he, as he says, according to Pothoris, he says at one point, they did not feel that they belonged to America or that America belonged to them. Um, They felt that a critical remove from it. He says, you know, key for especially the first generation is this combination of uh, left-wing anti-Stalinism and commitment to the avant-garde in arts. Um, So it's kind of fusion of, you know, sort of high modernism and, and aesthetics and on the whole being on the political left, but sort of critical of We get to the second generation, um, and he's got to think of them as being more literary and more comfortable in America, as he is what Horowitz thinks about. And again, because this is making it, nothing can be simple. Actually, the first generation is almost, the second generation is almost two slices in it. Uh, There's generation 2.1, he says, which is like people like Saul Bellow, Delmore Schwartz, and Mary McCarthy. And generation 2, which is a little bit younger, um, which is people like um, we've mentioned earlier, earlier, Irving Howe, Daniel Bell, James Baldwin. Nathan Blazer, Irving Crystal, um, and then we have the third generation, which is where uh, Paul Howard puts himself. Uh, and he says it's him and I and Susan Sontag, um, sort of exemplars of the third generation. Uh, and he thinks after that they sort of sort of disintegrate. Uh, but it's a very close knit group of, um, of of intellectuals centered New York City, uh, later known often as the New York intellectuals. Uh, but they're if they are a family, they're not always a very happy family. As he emphasized, certainly is not. That, yeah, yeah. That uh, being in the family he says is getting noticed and recognized. But once you're noticed, you'll be almost relentlessly criticized. Uh, that there's not, you know, he, he contrasts that with, um, like, the new critics or whatever, um, who will spend a lot of time praising each other's work, but not, not in the family. Um, to be noticed is to be um, relentlessly sort of uh, criticized, um, in it, and that's what part of it is to be in the family. So that's sort of an overview of where they're coming from.
0: Yeah, and I would add an interesting, I mean, this this connects, I want to kind of connect what you said about the family to both of these themes of kind of identity in America. Um, But before we do that, I want to connect it to success. One of the interesting things, right, that he points out is, you could say the first generation, you know, is happy to be, I would say, the small, happy clan of intellectuals that is small and therefore elite and therefore they believe themselves to be you know setting the the tone for the rest of the the country maybe right it's yeah. it's, it's fine if partisan reviews you know circulation is 10,000 copies it only takes 10,000 subscribers right to do what they want to do and if they try to appeal Right to a to a broader audience, they they might be selling out and compromising their commitment to right genuine criticism and and kind of genuine political subtleties. I would say Podhoritz suggests that the second and third generation right just they start to discover the possibility of writing for a broader audience and making more money. So yes, right he he's asked when he's asked to review. Um, some some uh, books for the New Yorker, right? It's n- comes as a, a pleasant surprise that the New Yorker pays a lot more than Partisan Review or Commentary could. Um, you know, he mentions Hannah Arendt's uh, trip when she was sent to Jerusalem for the Eichmann trial by the the New Yorker. Uh, at the end of the book, he mentions um, you know James Baldwin ultimately writing a piece for for the New Yorker for four or five times the amount of money right, but Horitz had offered him at commentary. Um, I think, but Horitz mentions Esquire and a few other magazines. So there's a kind of interesting transformation just in terms of the role of the intellectual and what success might mean, right? The possibility of, of appealing to a broader audience and writing for, guess what, what you might call middle brow, the middle brow magazines that, that starts to become attractive and, and to, um, I don't know, expand the possibilities of an intellectual in America. And, and I think Podhoretz wants to take advantage of it, like like people presumably like Conor Arendt and, and others.
1: No, I think that's very important because there's a sea change that's happening over the course of this work. Um, the sea change is post-World War II affluence. Um, Podhoritz makes a lot of this, that after World War II, we're seeing two decisive changes from his perspective – uh, one is we're now in the affluent society. We're no longer in the Great Depression. We're no longer in the First World War, uh, or pardon of the Second World War. We are now in this period of great prosperity. So we're seeing the rise of mass affluence, and we're also seeing the rise of mass education, where with the GI Bill is sort of turning out. More and more people have gone to college. And he, he thinks, and one of his friends, Jason Epstein, uh, in this book, um, that's sort of his publishing career on this, mm-hmm. that we're seeing the rise of a, of a reader who is interested in ideas uh, and wants material books that are accessible to some extent, but also have a serious intellectual content. And so we'll start to see the intellectuals having new uh, commercial opportunities in this period uh, because because there's more of a college-educated audience from that perspective. There's more of an appetite for this. And because there's mass affluence, um, there's more pay for this too. Um, And so this is going to, dramatically change what it means to be an intellectual. And again, originally, as you ta- as you mentioned, like at first the family is very critical of this idea of writing for like The New Yorker like that's vulgar, you know, it's got all these ads. How terrible right um, <laughs> But oh no, actually, I-, I don't mind making you know this kind of money writing something, you know It's like there are these new financial opportunities. and he doesn't address this too much, um, but also obviously during this time period. You'll start to see the intellectual class also increasingly migrating towards universities where there are also other sort of financial opportunities, too, where they no longer have to sort of eke out a living, you know, through writing these very small pieces, you know, that get or make very long pieces, but they get paid very little. Right. Uh, but there's this new opportunity for aff- affluence there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Maybe we can now shift more explicitly to the theme, move away from from success more towards this theme of identity Uh, and, and put understanding of himself, uh, as an American, you mentioned the, the first generation of, of the family, these New York intellectuals didn't think of themselves really as American at all. They weren't particularly interested in the intellectual history of America, uh, says they, they didn't really think of themselves as, as Jewish either. He says they thought of themselves as universal men. Maybe we can start by going back to the beginning of the book. Uh, I was struck by very some very funny some very funny lines during his time in in Cambridge. We should say, Put Horace does not. It's it's he makes it clear when he arrives in in Cambridge, he doesn't really think of himself as an American in any coherent way, and so he he arrives in 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 Cambridge and he. He is offered a what seems to be a fairly substantial flat <laughs> in its size, which even comes with a kind of butler who, who refers to him as sir, right? So this is a particularly shocking development, uh development for him. And uh and so he says, I, I just want to read this one very funny line on page 57. Uh, he he says, uh, it has been said that it takes three generations to make an aristocrat. My own experience would suggest that three weeks are about enough. <laughs> that at any rate is, is approximately how long it took for all the anxieties I had brought to England with me over such matters as clothes, manners, and general social style to evaporate. Poof, And they were gone. And then he says they evaporated because, as it astonishingly turned out, Manners were of absolutely no consequence in a traditionally structured class society. So I think this is one of the interesting observations that he makes about the distinctiveness um, of America, especially how that America operates on him in his youth, right? Initially, manners matter more than anything, right? You have the high school teacher bringing him bringing him to the restaurant and him struggling, you know, having, having to, uh, accustom himself to this new, new world of, of manners and it being necessary for him to have a certain kind of manners in order to achieve the self transformation that he, he is seeking. Then he goes to England. It turns out manners don't, don't matter at all because everyone knows exactly who everyone is as a member of a particular class. And and then he you know but he but he still doesn't really think of himself as an American yet. It's only when he starts to travel in Europe, and people see that he's an American and tell him why he's an American <laughs> that he thinks, oh, maybe my country has stamped me in a more substantial way than than I thought. I mean, he talks about silly things like, you know, Americans seem to to take lots of uh, they don't take like to take baths, they take showers and they take you know many of them much more than other people in Europe they like they seem to have a uh, i think he says a an affinity for ice more than other <laughs> other people right so there's there's silly things that he mentions but um i would say that's where this this um transformation of himself starts as him becoming more aware of his americanness than he had ever than he had ever thought
1: yeah no i think i i think that's definitely true that he, he discovers what's American about him when he when he goes over to Europe, and just there's another scene where he thinks about another aspect of what it means to be an American from his perspective. And again, this reflects on American class distinctions and social dynamism. Uh, this is in '62, um, where he contrasts the so, the sort of stagnant, kind of rigid social order of, of England um, to um, the American social order and the American economy. He contrasts what he calls a society that is a traditionally class based society um compared to one that is or appears to be highly mo- mobile and open and he says that really class-based society suppresses ambition he says the former in short in short especially when the economy is stagnant undercuts and subverts ambitiousness because living in a this rigid class-based society it doesn't matter what you do you'll always be a duke or you'll always be a peasant right that's just how you, you can't change that not so in a more dynamic society that, he says, especially in times of economic growth, excites and stimulates ambition. And so that very ambitiousness that Paharaz feels is itself a sign of his Americanness because he's used to growing with his environment where, oh, I can change, where I can transform my social condition compared to a, say, more rigid or class, more rigidly class structured society.
0: Now I want to get into this, this um, again, elaborate more on this theme of of becoming an American and explore it through uh, what what he calls the social contract. this is this is something he brings up uh, very early in the book in this in this section uh, where he talks about Columbia and Cambridge. But then he returns to it uh, at the at the end <clears throat> when he's discussing pluralism and again, the possibility of of rising and doing the things that you are just just talking about. So one I wanted to uh, to bring up this one passage on on page. 58 uh on the social contract and so here's what here's what he says the contract is uh the contract was this to the degree that these people would submit to quote Americanization which is to say to the degree that they would learn and adopt the language traditions and customs of the oldest American group meaning wasp uh to that degree they would be accepted which is to say, freed from some of the many kinds of discrimination, gross and subtle, open and concealed, to which in defiance of the strictly legal social contract called the Constitution that presumably governed the country, they were invariably and cruelly subjected. Uh, Hence the importance of manners at an institution like Columbia, and their converse lack of importance at Cambridge, product of an ethnically homogenous country, in a more straightforwardly class-bound society, so he's cons- comp- Hortz is very open, as as you said at the beginning. I think when you when you referred to the brutal bargain, right? That Americanization does mean some sub- substantive changes in manners and and morals, um, and a kind of you know letting go of one's language to a certain extent and and customs and and roots. And so Americanization does seem to be a kind of cultural transformation in important ways, but again, one that he seems willing to undergo if that's what takes if if that's what it takes for success. And he seems more interested in exploring that than in the kind of legal understanding of of a social contract, right? He doesn't talk in here about. Jewish quotas at, at Columbia and other things that, that might have been changing by the time that he's going to Columbia. Yeah,
1: no, he's really thinking about that that project of socialization and what's involved in that. And I mean, at one other point, he thinks about this brutal bargain means partly you have to become what he calls a facsimile wasp. Uh, this is that you have to become this copy that isn't you know, quite perfect, but it's close, so close enough. And there's this, and this is something that he thinks about, commentary is a uh, magazine is thinking about is Okay, how much can you assimilate versus how much can you maintain a sort of separateness or kind of integrity? So where you don't just become that facsimile wasp? Like how do you resist that? And he thinks about how different people like Moses Hadas and others have, have tried have tried to negotiate that that project. Um and that really sort of intertwines with the project of education in this work because part of way he analyzes education in this is it's sort of the he thinks of education as sort of often aspiring to the universal he thinks about how columbia tries to present itself as western civilization which i thought of as universal but then he comes to think of it as actually it's pretending to universality but it's really its own form of particularity it's really trying to impose this kind of wasp cultural code on us and that's part of the goal of it the goal is to sort of americanize it in that way and so he's this deep, and he's inherited, especially from like Trilling and Levis, this idea that, you know, literary criticism is aspiring towards the universal and that sort of thing. But he also has this, you know, anxiety about how much is it really actually more particularist than that? How much is it actually not universal, but just, you know, life is seen from a certain angle. And there's kind of a tension there, I think, in this work about that.
0: Yeah. Do you think he, I was struck by that passage that that I read, and then what you were just, just talking about the the sort of facsimile wasp i wonder what i i think by the end of the book i would say he he doesn't he doesn't ever say this explicitly but i would say he seems less convinced of the of the necessity of the triumph of the facsimile wasp than he might have been at the beginning of the book he you know he does i mean he he succeeds i guess i wonder ultimately maybe this is just the question i'll ask you do you think the message of the book is that by the end of making it padhoritz has rendered himself a kind of facsimile wasp
1: i don't um i i can't read into his mind but um i think by the end it's he's more thinking about that project being able to strike that balance of trying to assimilate to some extent, but also having this kind of difference. And there's this important, I think, moment later on in the book. This is like in 2017 and uh, probably 217 and 218, where he thinks about, OK, the Constitution of America had been this idea that okay, you have to submit yourself to the, from the cultural norms of the WASP. But then he argues, but actually we've been able to put in these sort of what he calls these qualifying amendments, um, which actually allow for this deeper kind of cultural diversity. And this more kind of um, sort of more kind of pluralism. And so he says, we see this politically, right? He says, you know, there came a time when political tickets had to be balanced in ethnic terms, uh, making it possible and even necessary for politicians to exploit their ethnicity as a resource instead of reputing it as a stigma. Right. Um, and when our appointments to a wide variety of actual offices from cabinet posts to university presidencies could only be had by a member of one of the more recently arrived ethnic groups. Um, to create, create, try to create this alternative kind of representation and this expansion of kind of cultural norms that are accepted in in American life, and I think he sees himself as partly participating in this change, and he sees commentary partly trying to do that. as trying to create a space for you know being a writer, both American
0: uh, and Jewish, and
1: finding affinities, but also being willing to find moments of, of distance as well. I think.
0: Right. yeah, he says uh, a couple of exam he gives a couple of examples of this uh, Arthur Goldberg, Supreme Court Justice, right. He, he couldn't have attained that status had he still had the manners of quote, a second generation Jewish boy from the streets of Chicago. right um, And then he brings up Kennedy too, um, John F. Kennedy, right not not um, not being like full Irish Catholic, you know Boston person. But I think he also wants to say, but but people like Goldberg and Kennedy are retaining enough that they're changing the country in important ways. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's very and good. And I mean,
1: just, I mean, obviously look at the bigger melange of American life. We see how these different cultural traditions, whether, you know, enter the mainstream uh, of American life um, and simultaneously participate and stand for, apart from it. Whether it's like, you know, sort of the cat skills, humor. Uh, eventually sort of you know transforming american comedy um so people of all sorts of different backgrounds can participate in that tapping into these other kind of traditions that are out there i mean obviously i think probably the most popular example for that is food right i mean what's sure what's you know i mean how what are american things but like things like taco bell um and you know and these italian you know italian chain restaurants like you know olive garden or something like that i mean this is very you know this american thing to assimilate these you know they create panda express or something like that to assimilate these are sort of new culture customs and new cultures into this sort of bigger um, cultural space
0: yeah yeah I, I used to i used to make fun of the olive garden but now my daughter has convinced me it's not it's not such a bad deal you get the bottomless yeah. sticks and the the salad uh, you know it's no, has got it's it's got its merits one more particular thing I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you about, and this doesn't he doesn't really tie this together, I, I guess as a as a general theme, um, but I'll I'll try to do that now. There, there are lots of interesting observations and and meditations in the book uh, on higher education. Right, we get his his rendering of of the program that that you alluded to at at Columbia. This kind of great great books uh, curriculum that uh i think that it was started in i want to say the late the late teens early 20s or or around then. i'm not quite quite sure of that but um you know great 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 renowned professors like Lionel Trilling uh, and others taught in it um Pthortz makes his way in that world and then of course he we've talked about his his time at cambridge um being uh kind of mentored by by levis he talks at the end of the book about liberal arts colleges you you've mentioned kind of the post-war transformation where you have lots more people going going to colleges and getting degrees than ever before and so one one thing that uh that he mentions that kind of ties into to what you were you were talking about is that it turns out that there's often a kind of a kind of tension in what the people who graduate from these liberal arts colleges, kind of learn about success in America and and what it means and and what it costs and between that what they're taught and kind of what they have to do in order to make their way in America and um you know and become self-sustaining and and, and successful and so he says one one model of course were the beat the beats of the 1950s um right, who wanted to live a kind of bohemian lifestyle and opt out of the traditional American world of, of success and jobs and all that. Um, and then he he mentions the new left, right, another kind of new social movement that wants to reject contempt, contemporary America and say, these are intolerable compromises, right, and no one no one should make them. Um, but then he mentions this alternative kind of accommodationist path where the people who who are educated in these colleges and universities, um, they make the best of a bad bargain by trying to get places like uh, the advertising world on Madison Avenue. To be elevated right by their education and by their and by their taste. You you mentioned, I think a few minutes ago, Jason Epstein and his effort um, with Doubleday and Anchor Books, who, you know, wanted to take advantage of this new market uh, for for books having to do with with ideas and, and more substantive literature. And so he wants to say maybe there's a way in which these ancient enemies of of commerce and um, and culture need not be need not be enemies um so if you want to just say a few things about um Padhoritz's meditation on that on that tension and kind of the role of universities um back then and and how they helped to produce that tension and then if you if you want to get into it maybe maybe we could talk about where um where we see that problem today right it's a kind of interesting question whether we're sort of dealing with the same same problem today as we were back when um is writing this book in the in the 1960s
1: yeah well well, it's kind of like what is it the revolution of rising expectations um that you know that originally i mean my port is accounting here the liberal arts were traditionally designed for a relatively narrow elite of people uh mostly people who were you know aristocratic or um or in America's case, in the United States' case, we're going to become ministers or something like that, you know, relatively sort of narrow yeah, yeah. population. Uh, and used to those kinds of cultural conditions where, oh, you know, of course, I want to create a really refined sensibility because all I'm going to do is listen to, you know, uh, Beethoven sonatas anyways. That's what my, my life is. I don't have to go through the indignity of like working, you know, 40 hours a week or something. And he says, but we've educated now more and more people to desire these things. And, you know, as you Mention this, this sense of can we fulfill that? Um, and there's there's this almost kind of polarized response. One is and you can clearly see where the new left and sort of the d- disruption of the sixties and seventies coming out of. One is saying I can't make these compromises. These I you know how I how can I been, turn to an office job after I've been spent you know four years reading you know um, reading Thoreau and Montaigne and that sort of thing. um so it's clear the social order must be unjust if this is happening. Um, And so there's this unrest. And he's, at one point, he has this very kind of arch thing where this idea of whole dropping out. He's like, well, for the few beat writers who had any talent, maybe that could work. But he says, you know, most people don't have that level of writerly talent. So what does that mean for them to do that?
0: (laughs) If you drop out, you're going to be... You know, catatonic homeless person wandering the the streets, right? It doesn't turn out to be that fun, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like not not everyone's going to be like, you know, Vincent Van Gogh. You know, most people won't be like that, Horace says. Um, and then the other is that more accommodatious thing. And I think this is to pick up that theme of affluence, you know, he's still writing this in the in the mid-sixties. We have not yet hit, you know, oil shocks and that sort of thing. There's a hope that okay, maybe we can create enough economic expansion that those aesthetic interests can go elsewhere, right? So you can go to Madison Avenue, you can create, you know, um, channel that energy into something that you still find stimulating and you'll still have enough time to, you know, um, to read, you know, interesting books, you know, paperbacks by anchor in the the evenings or whatever. Um, But obviously, you know, the robust economic growth of the fifties and sixties does not continue indefinitely. Um, and certainly, um, I mean, now if you look over the past, really, I would argue the past 20 years, um, at least in the United States, you've seen this, you know, significant, you know, um, stagnation and growth, which has had arguably uh, big implications for, um, American society as a whole, but especially for young people, um, where they want, understandably, they would like to have, you know, um, not even just time to listen to Beethoven, but, you know, um, uh, be able to get like a really stable job that allowed them to raise a family and many young Americans find that harder um there's a great contemporary essay that came out I think a few years ago I forget the author's name but it's um called the premium mediocre life of Maya millennial and it's thinking about you know young people um who don't necessarily have a lot of money uh but want to sort of have this sort of, you know, more um, dynamic life. And this is written by a younger person themselves. It's not written by, you know, some, you know, maybe boomer lamenting them. This is, you know, a contemporary my a millennial and saying, and so this is why this author argues millennials want to have like, really like, you know, a deluxe bar of chocolate or some really, or some, you know, sort of premium kind of premium accessible thing uh, because they've been denied access to, you know, some of those other conventional markers of wealth and status and stability. Um, and so obviously you can see, I guess also today that sort of dual tension of also the temptation to drop out. We see, um, especially a lot of younger men who have dropped out of the workforce, um, who feel like, you know, there's, there's, um, little economic opportunity for them. Or if, the, even if there are jobs, they're not jobs that will allow them to climb the ladder and actually sort of, you know, be able to buy a, buy a home and raise a family. And that has big implications, on um, both for, um, the American economy, but also for the American family structure.
0: Right, and it doesn't seem the example that that you just gave of you know I guess older now older ish millennials in in adulthood wanting a certain kind of status, but but maybe not completely at home with I guess traditional Benjamin Franklin right bourgeois path of success. That's that sort of thing. It's really a different version, of, right, of what Podhoritz evokes about. I guess the '50s and early '60s in the in an intellectual world. On the one hand, these these people are are you know with with a few exceptions right there. They're assistant editors, you know, at places like Partisan Review and other small magazines. And when they do publish, they make a couple hundred bucks for a for a book review here and there. So they have very modest modest means and modest income, and that gives them, in a way, a sense of uh, a, a, in itself, it gives them a sense of status, right? I'm not driven by money. I'm not so vulgar as to be motivated to debase myself, right, for the for the almighty dollar. So it feeds into their self understanding and, and ego. On the other hand, they love nice things, right? So he, I think, Podhoritz has this funny scene where he he and a friend go to a a, a New York steakhouse you know and they have this this steak dinner that neither of them can afford or even close to afford but it doesn't occur to them it it or i guess it occurs to them but they it occurs to them that they shouldn't eat at this restaurant but to do that would be to kind of think poor and they don't want to think of themselves as poor so they don't in other words they don't want the the vulgar success model of americanism but they also don't want to think poor and they love being these these high status intellectuals. So in a weird way, that's the same kind of mentality that you were just talking about, right? That you don't your self understanding prevents you from from being driven by ordinary motives. That if you were to accept them, right, would kind of help you to confront reality and and actually get ahead in a kind of responsible way. Or maybe that's just a maybe I'm just an old fashioned bourgeois that. Doesn't doesn't understand the deeper the deeper motives, but
1: well, I know it's interesting. There's this kind of interesting parallel in some ways between a, a certain kind of bohemianism and sort of the mentality of the old aristocracy. Um, because the old I mean, old aristocracy, one of those vulgar things to do is to talk about money, right? And to say I should just be able to enjoy these things without having to worry about that. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, potter, I mean, potter does worry about money in this. But, you know, you see that amongst some of his writerly circles, like, oh, we should just be able to enjoy this and who worries about money, right? Uh, but we still want to be able to enjoy it. That's part of the point, right? It's not that, you know, I'm not just going to go to, um, I don't know, to, to McDonald's or something like that. I still want to have something nice to eat, even though I, you know, feel, yeah, I shouldn't think about money either. So there's that interesting sort of, you think of like the, you know, uh, these aristocratic Russian characters in like, you know, Tolstoy or something like that are always spending beyond their means because it would be again terribly you know, you know coarse to be like a penny pinching figure, you know you want to you know enjoy it
0: right. And you want, I mean to go back to the uh, you know, Olive Garden example, right people's self-understanding as as a kind of responsible intellectual type might might lead them to say, well, I wouldn't be caught dead at Olive Garden because I want to go to the boutique italian restaurant in you know in in um, in my hometown or in a city that has locally sourced you know pork and uh organic arugula right all, all of that stuff so it comes it comes along with a certain kind of of status do you think maybe getting near the end of the of the episode here I wanted to to raise one one question about something that he says at the conclusion of of the book um, and then tie that back into something that you said at the beginning, Fred, about why the book might have been controversial and and not so well received upon its initial uh, publication. Uh, near the end of the book, Pat Horitz is invited to this uh, rich person's private island in a kind of meeting of of rich people and you know intellectuals who who matter. In america and this this turns out to be a kind of transformative experience for him it it's what revises his understanding that the intellectual life has to be one of of quote relative deprivation right that if you go the path of an editor an intellectual and writer it's it's going to be relatively deprived in terms of of money and kind of ordinary pleasures, but it will give you different pleasures, deeper pleasures, right? I mean, this is often what I tell myself in in you know why I become a a professor, right? I'm not going to make a ton of money. If you know, I would have made more money had I chosen to to go to medical school um as i as i thought about as an undergraduate but then it turns out i wasn't very good at genetics so that that dream was squashed pretty quickly but you know i could have gone into to finance and other things and i you know i think i i probably could have put myself in the position of making a lot more money than i do now but um you know part of me told myself exactly what pathorat says he was taught to think presumably by people like trilling and others right that yes your life might not inc- you might not be able to take you know a vacation to hawaii once a year but the substantive intellectual delights that you will have you know will far outweigh your your ability to do these uh to do these other things so as i said he goes he goes to this private island and all of this be- becomes transformed and so i just want to read a a passage from it so he, he he's talking about the intellectual life. He says uh, it carries its own rewards um, and except in very rare cases, the rewards were not of this world. And then he says one must not expect money and one must not expect fame and power outside the tiny circle of the similarly inclined. Expectation was the first step to a betrayal of integrity. Like the excellent student I was, I got the point of the lesson and with a veritable vengeance, I learned not to expect, only to begin discovering that in an affluent society and a post-middle-brow culture, not to expect was a way of not demanding what was now there to be had, and that not demanding was the surest way of not getting. I left Paradise Island resolving to demand. (laughs) Right? (laughs) <laughs> so he kind of discovers it doesn't have to be this way. I don't have to accept this bargain that people have been telling me I've had to make my whole life, right? I can I can live the life of an intellectual, I can live a life of a kind of substantive cultural critic. I can be someone who matters in that world. And guess what? I can make some money and find success, and that's okay. So is that you think that's what made this book? You know, people probably shudder in shock and in horror. Is that is that the thing that that uh, would would cause uh, many bad reviews to be, be to be written in the late '60s? I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a few things. I mean, I think reviewers from this time, you know, emphasized a few points. Um, I mean, I think first of all, this is coming at a time when success, the idea of success, I mean, it's always been an important theme in American culture, but it's becoming increasingly emphasized in the post-war period. Uh, but I think still at the time this book comes out, there's still this sense that it's kind of still success is still a little bit in Harris's term, you know, a dirty little secret, um, and so someone would be boasting so much about the success, like, look what I've done, and I want these things, I shouldn't be afraid of saying I want them. I think still there's this kind of hangover amongst literary circles, like oh no, I you know you shouldn't say that, you should <laughs> even if it's true, you shouldn't say that, right? Um, you know, I think it was Lionel Trilling even who um, recommended. Tried to convince Port Horowitz actually not to publish this book um, because mm. they, they when they saw it in draft they said this is you know um, this will hold you back people will hold this against you so I think it's partly that unabashed embrace of success and the not just the embrace of success uh, but the embrace of the desire for success that uh, this is not shameful that why why shouldn't I want it all right you know why shouldn't I demand in that sense. So I think there's that. I think also, though at times he actually is quite, you know, um, discreet in this, where he doesn't actually say who said some things from, he will just say like, you know, oh, a person said this to me. Uh, but still, there is some naming of names in this, right? Like, oh, so-and-so said this to me. And, you know, Saul Bell wrote this letter to me. And I think sometimes, you know, revealing that, I think some people are a little skeptical of. And I think partly, I mean, it's one of the great vices, I think, of literary cultures in general. But there's can be a little bit of a hurt instinct and people started saying oh everyone says this is such a bad book so therefore you know we have to sort of all agree that of course it's you know sort of backy in that way there's sort of that common uh dismissal of it um yeah because it does sort of um puncture a lot of ways intellectuals in this time period like to think of themselves as being above this and beyond this and he's like oh no this is that all those status games are very important there are these it's that great scene later on in the book where he talks about like the literary stock ticker reputation like oh you went to a party with Jackie Kennedy so it went up a few points and then like oh right. you got badly reviewed here so it went down a point so you know, sort of jumping up and down
0: it it seemed put Horace in a way gets the last laugh on on this question of of reviews and status of course because in 2017 the the book is reissued uh, surprisingly right by the imprint of the New York Review. Of books that you know, and that that magazine does not uh, come in for um, favorable remarks in uh, in the book.
1: No, it's no, it is very interesting. I mean, it's you know, it's, I mean, I, I don't propose this necessarily, but I think this is an interesting idea to think about. That in some ways, what made it controversial in its own time has helped it endure into ours because he's willing to cross those tripwires. He's willing to say, you know, those sort of more controversial things. And now we have a you know, perspective of 50 years. And I mean, I think Potearo is really pointing in the direction of some ways American culture is going, right? I mean, by now, I th- well, I think now it's come under some pressure, but say by the early 2000s, the idea of being invested in meritocratic success is completely uncontroversial. Of course, you should want everything, right? Of course, you should yeah. want success, and fame and money, like why would you think there should be a trade-off? Right, that's very uncontroversial. Uh, by that point in time, I think now the culture of success has come under a little bit more of a critique these days. Uh, but he sees that he sees this trajectory that American culture is going in, um, and because this is so um, relatively unflinching and looking at, well, this is what I feel, uh this is, these are my experiences and you know, putting it out there is I think helped give it a kind of, you know, um give it a kind of vitality and a kind of frankness. Right. That makes it really a document, not just of its time, it goes beyond its time, but that that really is revealing a lot of what's happening in American culture in the, you know, in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties.
0: Yeah. This so I should I should say when I when I came up with the idea for this podcast, I mean, as 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 you know, the the kind of inspiration was, right? We all have these books that um are wonderful books but maybe they're just not as well known as they as they should be and right it's sort of easy to get people ex- excited about talking about books that they think other people should should know about and and so you know neglected overlooked right that was that was a great inspiration for the for the podcast but then um secretly it's also i also ha- had books on my list that. You know i kind of had heard were good but you know weren't obviously great and that i never read and so this book actually falls into to that category you know it was just it was just a book that i i had always been meaning to read but never gotten never got around to read and and so um it's you know the podcast gave me a little incentive to to actually <laughs> to actually do something that i'd been wanting to do um for a long time uh, it is a it is a fun read. It's a quirky book. Yes. Um, it's very kind of conversational and observational. He has the I mean, I read that funny line about it took him three weeks to become an aristocrat, right? I mean, the book is filled with with fun lines um, about that. As you said, it has a kind of frankness, right? It's kind of unflinching in its portrait of of other people, but also in unflinching in its portrait of of himself and his self self-understanding. Um, it can be very deep, right? I mean, he has these kind of med- meditational passages about identity and, and success. Um, it's a gossipy book, right? If you know anything yes. about post-war intellectual life, it's fun to read about, right, what James Baldwin and Hannah Arendt were, were thinking when, you know, they were at these these parties. And, and so it's, um, I would say, I'm, I'm really glad that the New York Review brought it out again, because it does it does seem to be a kind of really interesting book and combine a lot of different facets and kind of type of uh, different types of writing that make it that make it really, again, very readable, but also very unique in, in many ways.
1: Yeah, no, there's just such a great range of tones in this book. And I think if you quickly sort of speed through it, it's actually easy to miss those. But there's the humor, there's the more lyrical there's the gossipy there's the more serious. I mean, these wonderful, like asides, like parentheticals, like advice chain writers do this, you know, which is right. sort of offered with a wink deliberately. Um, and so I think, you know, there's the risk of, again, if you just quickly read through seeing this all is very, like very self serious and self important. Uh, but I think there's actually a lot of sort of humor and sort of, you know, um, even gentle sort of self mockery built into this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, so maybe as we, as we end Fred, uh, what other books by Podhoretz would you recommend? I think this what this is is actually second book. He 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 talks about yes. publishing a book of uh, a book of kind of literary uh, essays near near the end. So he wrote that book and then this book. But then he he went he went went on as you said at the outset of the episode to edit commentary for thirty years. But but wrote a number of other books. So if readers um, like this book, where where should you, where do you think they should go next?
1: Well, if you really like making it, I would say um, pick up two later books that are almost form a trilogy with making it, uh, Breaking Ranks um, from the 70s and Ex-Friends from the 1990s. Um, and that's sort, of, sort of later books in that series actually reflect on the response to making it and how you know his relationships with various uh, other people have changed. I mean, Ex-Friends is literally about how his, his falling out with different people, um, often over questions of politics. And, uh, and, and writing. Um, so if you want to think about this or what Horace thinking about his overall intellectual trajectory, I think that those sort of um, three books, Making It, Breaking Ranks, and Ex-Friends are sort of a good and sort of ones to look at. Oh, um, I also think his literary collections are interesting too. Um, Doings, and Undoings, which was his first book, um, and also The Bloody Crossroads, which was from the 80s. And I think, you know, because Port did spend a lot of his time as a writer writing essays, um it's nice to look at those works and think of him writing in both literary and political topics and seeing how they intersect he wrote a lot of political books later um especially again focusing on foreign affairs but i think those other kinds of books help give us sort of a, a, a wider sort of ranging portrait of, of who he was as a writer does or who he is as a writer i should say
0: yeah does does x friends include a portrait of norman Mailer?
1: Oh gosh, know? that's a good question. I forget off the top of my I head. I think
0: I yeah I, I haven't read it. Um, but if memory serves, I think Mailer and Hannah Arendt are two of the figures. She is treated in the yes. book. Um, yes, but I was just going to add that that there's a kind of delightful minute miniature portrait of of Mailer and in, in making it that that I found really a, a, affecting. A kind of um, defense of of mailer from the other new york intellectual types who who didn't didn't like him but horetz kind of takes takes up his pen to to defend him and all his his um with all his flaws and and quirks i just found that part of the book kind of a fun fun little fun little section any i guess last last question do you think that um any parts of the book speak with with a, a kind of particular relevance or Urgency to um to some of the problems or questions in 2023. Um, does does the does the book have any interesting kind of connections to to where you see we are today?
1: Yeah, um I think a combination of connections and contrasts. I mean, in part, Port is writing this book at a time again of, of affluence, and a time when people are really thinking about, especially after the, the waves of immigration in the first part of the 20th century, where okay, how can we re-knit the American Social Compact? And there's this idea, okay, let's partly remake it around this idea of the rising tide, around this idea of upward mobility. This is what de- defines the United States, that it's an upwardly mobile country. And again, there's always been this There's been this long theme of upward mobility within American culture, but I think especially after the Second World War, um, even more emphasis is placed on it, right? Through, you know, post Deal, the Great Society, um, Reaganomics, arguably, right? Um, I think that idea of upward mobility after the stagnation of the past, you know, 10, 20 years, let's say you want to slice it, has been coming under increasing sort of pressure. Like, is that enough for a society? You know, or what happens when you don't have that kind of upward mobility that you need? Um, so I think this is a sort of a helpful early document thinking through, like, what does it mean to have this culture of, of success in American culture? Um, I think it's, I mean, it does offer this kind of sort of glamorous vision of intellectual life, you know, that, and I think it at, despite all the vices of the intellectuals in this work, it does show us the spirit. They did take seriously that ideas can matter. And I think that's always a good thing to be reminded of, you know, <laughs> that you don't necessarily need to sort of go have a fist fight with someone because you disagree about, you know, a poem or something, but it does show the, uh, you know, that taking ideas seriously can be a really rewarding thing. and can be a good reminder for us. Um, I probably look at this and also see a big gap between, Life in New York today versus what life in New York was back then. I mean, when Cold Horace is talking about again having a an apartment that's big enough for his family that he's his own study in for $165 a month. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, uh, even when you adjust that for inflation, that's what, I don't know, probably around like sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars. And I right. think you'd have a hard time getting that in Manhattan today, you know. Uh, <laughs> it'd be a lot harder. But it's this, um, I mean, so I think it's a really fascinating portrait of this other world. And obviously he's thinking about this idea of um of pluralism. How do we manage pluralism in American society? And um Hot was later quite critical of multiculturalism and sort of raised some some you know uh, was um critical of it. Um especially more recently, he's been very sort of sharp in some of his things he said about it. But in this, he's trying to think, well, okay, what does it mean to come from a different background and how can you make it in America? Um And without necessarily sort of completely sort of sacrificing your inherited family traditions, which is, I think, an abiding question in America and one that isn't just about, you know, immigration. It's also about, you know, if you come from a more rural area, what does it mean to sort of make in that culture? Because the United States is such a diverse area. And so what does it mean to come from different regions of the country? Does we all just have to fit into this one kind of, you know, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., New York definition of success? Or can there be other ways of thinking about culture, too? Um, so I think it's a sort of fascinating. It attends to that sort of really deep uh, question that is probably unresolvable in American
0: culture. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very good. Well, Fred, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for coming on Likewise. to discuss, uh, yeah, making it. And uh, maybe we'll have you back again. All right. Well, I really appreciate the invitation. and love talking about this. So thanks a lot, flag. Great. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org, that's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EI Pod. That's T H E E I P O D. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Enduring Interest.